July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hello, Rick. So at the end of season 10, you said we would wrap up this podcast series with a look back on the whole Earhart project and try to draw some conclusions and lessons. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've been doing this podcast for almost a year now. Doesn't seem like it. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. But it's been a lot of fun. I know. And in 10 seasons and 42 episodes, we've covered 34 years of research in a dozen tiger expeditions. You've been a wonderful interlocutor. Oh. I, yeah, that, that's a thing, you know, an interlocutor. Huh. Well, thank you. Uh, I've never uh, been accused of that before, but... Thank you. <laughs> You're quite welcome. <laughs> and I hope our conversations have been informative and entertaining to our many listeners. Yes, me too. We've always said the primary purpose of Tiger's investigation of the Earhart disappearance is to explore, learn, and demonstrate how to figure out what is true. And it's all about methodology. It's, it's like um, Kenny Rogers said in The Gambler. If you're going to play the game, boy, you got to learn to play it right. <laughs> and the way you play this game right is by using the scientific method of inquiry. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. You collect data. You formulate a hypothesis. You test the hypothesis. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> As we wrap up this series, let's apply some 2020 hindsight and review the high points and lessons. As you recall... We first decided to take on the Earhart disappearance in 1988 when two former military navigators approached us with the observation that Earhart's last radio transmissions heard by the Coast Guard cutter Itasca indicated that in trying to find Howland Island, she was following a standard navigational procedure that could have led her 
to uninhabited Gardner Island. Right. That was fascinating. It was a new theory based on a new interpretation of well-known facts. It's not like they discovered some new piece of information. They just looked at something that everybody knew and interpreted it based on their own experience. Mm -hmm. Those the facts that they were using were taken directly from the Atasca radio log. So, you know, and and that was that was well known. So, okay, they had collected data, and they had formulated a hypothesis, and they were asking us to test the hypothesis because they'd been going to the other side of the world, and yeah. they weren't able to do that hmm. themselves. But if we were going to test the hypothesis, the first thing we had to do was check their data. You know, you, you can't draw valid conclusions from bad information. And we had to be sure they were not cherry-picking only the facts that supported their theory. Hmm. In taking on this project, we assume that after more than half a century of debate about Earhart's fate, the facts of the case, the capabilities of her airplane, the events surrounding her last flight, the details of the government search that failed to find her, we thought that was all well-established and publicly available. So it should be just a matter of collecting newspaper stories and Earhart's own writings describing her preparations for the world flight and her newspaper stories describing the progress of the flight as she went around the world. Uh, There was the Coast Guard radio logs, they were available. And we knew we could get copies of the various government reports produced in the weeks and months following the disappearance. So getting the facts of the case should be easy. <laughs> we couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> we, we, so, we soon learned that this new theory about what really happened to Amelia Earhart was not new at all. In fact, it was the oldest theory. It's what the Navy thought happened for the first week after she disappeared. They only abandoned the theory after Navy planes searched Gardner Island and didn't see an airplane. The logic and evidence supporting the theory that they had bought into was simply dismissed when no airplane was seen on Gardner Island. Wow. And so the island was crossed off as having been searched, and the search moved on. And, of course, they didn't find anything. Wow. So it was clear to us at the outset that many of the accepted facts of the case were at best questionable, sometimes misleading, and all too often simply untrue. (laughs) The information in newspaper articles describing preparations for the world flight came primarily from Earhart or her husband promoter, George Putnam, and represented what today we would call spin. (laughs) The same was true of the travelogue stories Earhart provided for publication during the trip and subsequently edited by Putnam and published posthumously as the book Last Flight. Hmm. Even the Itasca radio log, a record of the radio transmissions and receptions to and from Earhart typed in real time as they happened, contained errors and information that had been missed or dismissed by previous researchers. Hmm. Let me give you an example. A close study of the original Itasca radio log, and I say original, there's a story behind this. Radio logs are routinely retyped a few days after they were uh, originally typed up because there are inevitably 
some strikeovers and, and errors and they're they're messy. So that they get what's known as known as being smoothed. We're gonna smooth the logs. So you've got just a nice this happened and this happened and this happened. So they they did that for any regular radio transmissions oh, yeah, that, or just if that, something No, that was standard procedure really? for radio oh, logs. Interesting. You, you you smooth the log. Huh. Well, after Earhart disappeared, uh, the logs that recorded, and I say recorded, it means typed, not right. audio recording. Right. The logs were were smoothed, but the chief radio man aboard Itasca, a guy named uh, Bellarts, had the foresight to grab the original raw log, ah. unsmoothed log, and Stick, stuff it away someplace. Wow. He kind of stole it. And <laughs> okay. it, it. Well, how did you come across it again? Well, he had the, the good sense and the, the moral uh, standing, I guess, to <laughs> give it to the National Archives uh, later, you know, a- yeah. after you retired. When, mm-hmm. and, I, and this was like years later when suddenly the Earhart disappearance suddenly blew up in, in in the 1960s blew up and oh she was captured by the Japanese oh, no she crashed right. at sea and so hmm. and Bellard said no I've got that original log and he gave it to the National Archives so that was available hmm. we looked at that radio log closely one of the things that that log the both the smooth log and the raw log said she said was uh, this was shortly after uh, she announced that we must be on you but cannot see you, mm-hmm. have been unable to contact you, contact you by radio. And then she she wanted the uh, Itasca to send a signal, and she was going to try to home on their signal. Uh. And in there, according to the log, she said, we are circling but cannot hear you. And pick up any book about the Earhart disappearance, and that'll be quoted, oh, she was circling. Oh. And it always struck me, though. Why is she circling? And what? Is she circling? Is she circling to accomplish what? I mean, she can't find her destination. If you can't see it from where she is, she ought to go someplace where she thinks she might be able to see it, not just (laughs) circle where she is. Hmm. But we looked at that radio log very closely, and we noticed that that the word circling was slightly higher on the line. There was a platen misalignment. Somebody had gone back. Remember how typewriters work? You oh know? yes, yes. Yeah. You know, you've got the platen. Yeah. It goes along and ticka 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 ticka, and then you say, "Oh no, that's wrong. I want to change that." And you have to go back and roll the platen, and you, they you never get it quite right. Yeah. <laughs> so this word "circling" appears just slightly higher than the other words. Oh, that's interesting. And there's something under there. Something's been erased. Hmm. So thank the Lord for Photoshop. We went into Photoshop with a scan of the original log, took out circling, and left just the pieces of the erased word that survived the erasing. Huh. And very clearly, the, the original word was drifting. Oh. Okay. So when the radio operator first typed what he thought he would hear, he said, we are drifting but cannot hear you. He apparently looked at that and said, that can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> drifting? Cannot hear you? Um, 
drift. Uh, must have been circling. And wow. he wrote, circling. For we years. Are, we are drifting but cannot hear you. We are circling but cannot hear you. How about we are listening but cannot hear you? <laughs> That's what makes sense. And it's got the same sounds. Yes. I-S-T-I, yeah. listening, drifting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. it does. So she didn't say she was circling. She said she was listening, but she couldn't hear them. Mm. There are several places in the log where the log says that she wants Itasca to do something in half hour. And it doesn't make any sense given the time it was set. And it would, quite clearly, she was she what she said was on half hour. Uh, well, that, that happened because Earhart had told Itasca prior to her takeoff from New Guinea, that she was going to use Greenwich time for all her radio schedules. Huh. And they simply ignored it, didn't register it for some reason. They used their own local time throughout the whole thing, which was a half an hour different. Oh, no. Really? So when it was on the hour to Earhart, it was on the half hour oh, to Itasca. Hmm. When was that figured out? We figured it out. Really? Oh, yeah. gosh. And, uh, nobody had ever I don't remember recognized that. that. Hmm. Looking at the logs also revealed that the supposed last transmission heard from Earhart was by no means the last one. That they kept hearing transmissions that they thought were her for days. The official verdict after the search failed was that, no, she must have crashed at sea. So all those places where somebody in the log says, yeah, we hear her now, and it's like 12 hours after she's got to uh, be out of gas, and the airplane can't transmit if it's in the water. Right. Uh, we must have been wrong, so we're, never, we're just not going to mention that. Oh, wow. But we look, got looking at it and said, no, 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 wait, this isn't right. <laughs> so those okay. were in the original log yeah, and out yeah. of the smoothed log? Wow. Oh, the, they're in the original logs and and in the smooth logs. Oh, are they? But they were just they ignored. They just ignored them. They're just ignored. Hmm. So it was clear from these and other discoveries that no one had ever done a really thorough investigation of the Earhart disappearance. That is no, amazing. Nobody had really looked into this thing. Wow. And as I said, you can't draw valid conclusions from bad information. So, how do we get the good information? We had a researcher, Dr. Randy Jacobson, who worked for the Office of uh, Naval Research. He's an oceanographer, geologist, brilliant guy. He took it on as a project himself to begin tracking down, compiling, and eventually databasing thousands of contemporary government messages, telegrams, letters, logs, and memoranda. Wow. All the stuff that was generated and logged, filed with the National Archives and other archives and sources at the time it happened. This is not an after-action report going back and saying, well, this is, this is what happened back then. <clears throat> All contemporary information. Yeah, I mean, this is... It, it, it took six years to, I bet. To, to put all this together. First, to find all these documents and then construct an accurate chronology because this was sent from San Francisco, this was sent from Washington, this was sent from Hawaii. What was the time zone difference? Right. And some of the time zones were different back then than they are now. You've got to get that right. <laughs> Hawaii wow. used to be 10 and a half hours 
really? from uh, from Greenwich, and now it, it's ten hours. So you, you've got to get it right. But once he had that all adjusted and put in a database, what we what we ended up with was an accurate day by day, often moment by moment chronology wow. of events related to Earhart's preparations and for her flight and for the search that um, didn't find her. And it was a very different story than was told in the many biographies and books about what really happened. Once we had the truth, as best we could do it from the original sources, all those official after-action reports are, are, are shot through with inaccuracies, unwarranted assumptions, cover your butt distortions, Things didn't happen the way people said they did. Hmm. Okay. To belabor the obvious. <laughs> Solving a mystery means finding previously unknown facts. So, it's important to appreciate the difference between facts and opinions. Uh, hmm. And that can be trickier than it sounds. <laughs> For example, it might be seen as a fact that the Atasca radio log is a record of what Earhart said as she was trying to find Holland. But, as we've seen, that's not what it is. The fact is, the log is a record of what the Atasca radio operator thought he heard her say. There's right. a difference. Yes. Similarly, Earhart's own writings about her preparations for the world flight do not necessarily describe her pressure preparations for the world flight. <laughs> They're what Earhart wanted the public to think about her preparations for the world flight. And we know from private correspondence that she and her husband frequently and quite intentionally misled the public. Hmm. All right. The same fact versus opinion principle applies to physical evidence. Unless an artifact can be shown to be quantifiably unique to, in this case, Earhart or the Electra, what is colloquially known as a smoking gun, its strength as evidence relies upon the qualitative judgment of how likely it is attributable to some other source. Let hmm. me just clarify something. <laughs> Quantifiable means you can reduce it to numbers. Hmm. Okay. Qualitative is an, a, a subjective judgment of the, the quality of it. It's, ah. it's a lot fuzzier. You know, if, if I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's quantitative. Right. If I say 2 plus 2 equals a lot, that's qualitative. <laughs> so with artifacts, you're always dealing with this question, if this thing is not a clue to the, to the mystery, how much of a coincidence would it be for this thing to be where we found it? You're always dealing with coincidence, m making a judgment. You, you, you find something that doesn't seem to belong where you found it, unless it's from the thing that you're looking for. Hmm. So, what if that's just a coincidence? Something happened that you didn't know about that left this thing here. Oh, what are the chances of that? So you're, <laughs> always, you're always judging that. And that's true of any artifact, unless you've got this quantifiable, like a serial number right, on, a, right. on a piece of wreckage. Well, the validity of the qualitative opinion depends on how much information you have about the context in which the artifact was found. Best example of that is if, if we're finding things at this castaway campsite, we can't make good 
judgments about them, assuming they don't have serial numbers or something that leaves no question about what they are. You have to make qualitative judgments based on what you know about the context. Hmm. For example, we're using metal detectors there and we come up with uh, some 30 caliber rifle uh, brass. Well, we know there was a Coast Guard unit there that had 30 caliber weapons. Right. But then we find some 22 caliber brass. Well, Coast Guard didn't have 22 caliber weapons. The government never issued a 22 caliber weapon to, in World War II or any time. So, God, does this mean Amelia Earhart had a 22 caliber pistol with her? <laughs> As it turns out, you do your homework. Gerald Gallagher, the colonial service officer who found the bones and artifacts, right. had a 22 caliber Colt Woodsman pistol. Oh, it huh. was in the inventory of his personal effects uh -huh. after he died there on the island. Wow. Okay, so that is a better explanation for the 22 caliber brass than that Amelia Earhart secretly oh, had this pistol. Sure. Talk about the bones. A quantitative statistical study by forensic anthropologist Dr. Richard Jantz of the bones found by Gerald Gallagher in 1940, based on measurements taken by Dr. David Hoodless in Fiji in 1941, compared the measurements that Hoodless took to data collected from historical photographs of Earhart and a large reference sample of skeletal remains. Jans' study found a better than 98% chance the bones were Earhart's. That another woman who happened to be a, pardon the expression, dead ringer for Amelia Earhart had died on the island would be an extraordinary coincidence. It would. <laughs> and a coincidence for which there's no supporting evidence. <laughs> but seemingly extraordinary coincidences do occur, as we found out. Okay, somewhere near the bones, Gallagher found a box that it once contained a nautical sextant. Now, Tiger Research established that the numbers that were stenciled on the box showed that, that the box had been for a Brandis and Sons Brooklyn Navy surveying sextant, which turns out to be the same type of sextant Fred Neenan used as a backup instrument. Ah. Wow. Hmm. That's a compelling clue, you think. What's a box like that doing in that spot on this island? Sure. A box just like Noonan used? <laughs> a box for, for a sex just like Noonan used? That was fine until one of our critics, bless his heart for this, digging around in the National Archives of the Navy's um, Naval Observatory that, that calibrated sextants for the Navy. Oh, he found that a Brandis and Sons Brooklyn Navy surveying sextant with the same serial number as the number on the box was in the records of sextants that were aboard the survey ship USS Bushnell that carried out a survey of Gardner Island in 1939, the year before Gallagher oh, found the bones and sextant box. Wow. Okay, so huh. a Bushnell surveyor had apparently <laughs> lost a sextant box and somehow managed to do it close to the bones of a castaway without noticing the dead castaway. <laughs> An extraordinary coincidence, but not as statistically improbable as Dr. Jantz's findings about the bones. So the Brandis and Sons 
Brooklyn Navy surveying sextants were widely available on the civilian surplus market. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that Fred Noonan had one. A lot of people had them. Right. They were also standard equipment in the U.S. Navy aboard survey ships. Obviously, they're survey sections. Sure. And several were in use by surveyors aboard Bushnell. Okay. So we know that those boxes for sections, just like the one Noonan used, were aboard the ship, and we know the ship was Gardner, and those sextants were ashore. Okay. We can be quite sure a boatload of Amelia Earhart lookalikes never visited Gardner Island. <laughs> yes. That's the difference. <laughs> True. Okay. The same coincidence question hovers over the artifacts we've found on the island that appear to be associated with the castaway. What are the chances that some person other than Amelia broke a jar of freckle cream at the seventh site and used one of the shards to cut meat from a turtle bone? Improbable? Yeah. But impossible? No. (laughs) You, you, You can't turn a freckle cream jar into a smoking gun. You just can't do it. (laughs) At this point, the only artifact we have that may ultimately meet the standard of being quantifiably Earhart related is the section of aluminum aircraft skin we found washed up in 1991. After a dozen expeditions to the island, millions of dollars and more blood, sweat, and tears than I care to remember, (laughs) archaeology has produced no smoking gun. The most important function of the expeditions beyond media coverage has been to provide us with the data we need to evaluate the quantifiable evidence, such as the post-loss radio signals. Mm -hmm. Unless and until there is physical proof of Earhart's fate, and that piece of aluminum might be able to do that, the radio distress calls heard for nearly a week after the disappearance are the closest thing to a smoking gun. The directional bearings taken by Pan American stations in Hawaii, Midway, and Wake, confirmed by multiple messages and uh, memoranda at the time, are quantifiable confirmation the aircraft was in the immediate vicinity of Gardner Island, on its wheels, and able to run an engine to recharge the battery. That's like a fact. Yes. Okay, that's not an opinion. The, the only way those signals can have happened, there is no alternative. The airplane had to be there. Hmm. Propagation analysis of dozens of receptions reported by Coast Guard, Navy, commercial, civilian operators showed at least 57 cases in which no other source is credible. Huh. The Bevington photo taken October 15, 1937 shows the wreckage of electrical landing gear on the reef in a location supported by the anecdotal accounts of airplane debris seen on the reef. Okay, Hmm. you can call that a coincidence. Hey, we've got this photograph that quite clearly does show the wreckage of landing gear on the reef, and it just happens to be where people said they saw airplane wreckage? Could be. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In 2007... We surveyed the reef surface in that area, which provided us with the data for an hour-by-hour analysis of the water level on the reef between July 2nd and July 9th. That study revealed that credible distress calls were heard only at times when the water level was low enough 
to permit an engine to be run. Another coincidence? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Betty's notebook provides an almost too intimate picture of events aboard the plane on the reef on Monday, July 5th, and contains occult information, as we call it. That is accurate information Betty could not have known, such as the name of the British freighter aground on the reef nearby. She was hearing something she thought was New York City, and that ship is the Norwich City. Right, right. Is that a coincidence? That Betty heard what she thought was New York City, and the ship happens to be Norwich City? Okay, how high do you need to pile the coincidences? Yeah, true. Before you, you get something that is almost certainly not a coincidence. Mm. Over the years, bit by bit, the jigsaw puzzle has come together. We do not yet have the full picture and probably never will. But the fate of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan is no longer a mystery. But more important than what happened is why it happened. Our 34 years of digging out the real facts of the case have shed new light and provided new insights on this American icon. I'll be delivering the manuscript of my new book, One More Good Flight, The Amelia Earhart Tragedy, to the publisher later this year for publication in probably 2023. That book will present a rather different, more human, and perhaps less saintly Amelia Earhart than the public is accustomed to. Ah. But we can only learn from history if we know the truth. That, as it has been from the beginning, is our goal. I invite our listeners to watch for more news of progress on that book. We'll be keeping people up to date through the Tiger website and Tiger email news reports, which you can sign up for via the Tiger website. In closing out, I just want to say again, thank you, Joan. Oh, you're this has so been... welcome, and I've been honored to be a part of it. Thank you, you know, I'm honored and Tiger's honored for to have. <laughs> well, and moreover, it's been really fun. It has been fun. So. And for all the times when it hasn't been much fun, <laughs> the Earhart Project has been a lot of fun. So. Yes, and fascinating. Yeah. We'll have to do this again sometime. Okay. <laughs> so your next project that you're... Do you have time oh, to next, talk about that? Oh, my God. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Where do I start with that? Well, it, it, this started a long time ago. This is the project that started Tiger. 1927. There's a $25,000 prize for the first nonstop flight between New York and Paris. Now, the Atlantic had been crossed before, as early as 1919, by Alcock and Brown. But that was from Newfoundland to Ireland. Sure. Nobody had ever flown between the two world centers, New York and Paris. Wow. And a French hotel magnate who owned hotels in both cities, Raymond Ortigue, put up $25,000 for the, the first nonstop flight between the two cities. And all the big names were going to uh, go for this. Richard Byrd was going to go for it. René Fonck, the leading French ace in World War I, partnered up with Igor Sikorsky for a big three-engined airplane that was going to do it. Uh, a couple of guys named Davis and Wooster had another big, uh, Handley Page, I believe it was, a twin-engine biplane that was going to do the flight. 
an unknown dark horse competitor in the whole thing, Charles Lindbergh, decided that he was going to take a, a crack at it. And Did they specify which way? Or no, no, could it be, no. It could it, be you, either way. You could go either direction. But, of course, the prevailing wind is from the west. Right. So Good everybody's point. thinking about going west to east, except two French aviation pioneers, Charles Nungesser, the third highest scoring French ace in World War One, and Francois Colli, another World War One ace and pioneering long-distance pilot across the Mediterranean and so forth. And they put together an effort to fly from Paris to New York. Colli had a theory that if you selected your weather carefully enough, you could get tailwinds going uh, east to west by riding the top of a big low-pressure area. See, oh. the, the airflow around low-pressure areas is counterclockwise. Right. And did they, did, did they have that ability to forecast the weather in that well, way then? Well, there were then? weather forecasts. Not as good as it is today. Yeah. But there were ships with radios that, that filed weather so reports on coastal plan? stations. Huh. And that was the plan, hmm. to wait for the weather and then go north. And then you could fly this great circle that went almost to Greenland and then down through just at the very northern part of Newfoundland and then on into New York. So that was their plan. And well, what, the, what were they flying? What were they intending the, to Their fly? airplane was a modification of a French naval observation aircraft called the Levasseur PL-4 that had a unique capability. It, it had a a boat-shaped watertight hull. It was a biplane, but with a boat-shaped watertight hull and little wingtip floats. And if the plane, it was normally operated off an air, aircraft carrier, but if the plane got stuck out away from the carrier and had to land in the water, it could safely land in the water. Couldn't oh. take off again. Couldn't taxi. Huh. But you didn't lose the crew in the airplane. The boat could go and pick them up and hoist them back aboard. Oh, interesting. So Nugisar and Coley figured we'd take one of those and we fill it full of fuel. Yeah. <laughs> and we drop the landing gear right after takeoff. Ooh. So we don't have to carry that weight and drag. Right. And we land in New York Harbor beside the Statue of Liberty, a French gift oh, in the United States. How exciting. I mean, what a great plan. That was a great plan. And plans of some of the others didn't go that well. Falks Sikorsky was doing a, a full fuel practice takeoff and ran off the end of the runway on Long Island. The gear collapsed and the airplane burned up. Oh. And killed a couple guys. Falk got out okay. But oh. Two gosh. fatals. Bird's airplane had an accident, did a nose over, and he was he was out of the running. He Again had a, on like a trial flight? It, yeah. Takeoff? Yeah. It, it wasn't, yeah, it, it was just a, a practice flight. Yeah. Hmm. Davis and Worcester, with their big biplane, were doing a full fuel test takeoff and ran off the end of the runway. The nose of the airplane was buried in a bog, oh. and they basically drowned. Oh, they, gosh. They couldn't get them out. Really? Yeah. So Nunjester said, we're not going to do any full fuel practice takeoffs. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll do test flights, and they did several test flights, and they are happy with the airplane. But... Uh, they didn't go with enough gas to fly the Atlantic until the morning of May 8th. That was the day that they decided to take off. 
and it was a hairy takeoff. He heavier than the airplane had ever flown. Yeah. And they had this huge twelve foot propeller that cleared the uh, the ground. What once the tail came up, the tip of that prop cleared the ground by less than six inches. Oh my gosh! It was, it was so he had to hold this thing just right, right. on the turf oh. field at Le Bourget Airport, but he did. Wow! Got off the ground, jettison the landing gear. And off they go. Nunjasera is on his way. And everybody figured they were going to make it. Man, this is Nunjasera and Koli. And they're the first right. plane to get off the ground with enough fuel. 40 hours of fuel. Wow. And, and they're gonna, heroes, like and war heroes. They're going to arrive in New York the next morning. Lindbergh is still in San Diego doing test flying on the Spirit of St. Louis. And he finds out that Nunjasera and Koli are off the ground and on their way with enough fuel to reach New York. He says, that's it. I'm done. Oh. Huh. Incidentally, the very good uh, 1957 movie about Lindbergh, Spirit of St. Louis, the Jimmy Stewart. Oh. Uh -huh. Has that part wrong. They have Lindbergh only learning that Ninjaser and Coley didn't show up when he gets to St. Louis on his way to New York. That's not how it happened. Uh. He was still in San Diego. He would not have even left for New York if he hadn't heard that uh. they were. Oh, that is a good it. point. But they didn't make it. So they get off the ground on May 8th, and they're expected in New York on the morning of May 9th. And everybody's expecting them to arrive. The weather is sucko. Low fog, invisibility, lots of boats out in the harbor to, to greet them. And the mayor of New York is out there in this, the city's yacht. So the weather's bad. It's an air. He's still going to arrive. And there are reports, oh, he's been seen... Over Newfoundland. Oh, he was seen over Nova Scotia. Uh, oh, he's been seen over Cape Cod. He's going to arrive any minute. And a French reporter decided he was going to scoop the competition. And he wired back a complete account of their arrival to Paris. You're kidding. Nunjasser has arrived. Oh, jeez. And Paris goes wild. Do you think that reporter got fired? <laughs> I imagine, probably. <laughs> but what about all these reports from being seen coming down the coast? Yeah. Turns out these are airplanes that were going out to meet them. Oh, and wow. people were seeing an airplane. Oh, that's got to be the White Bird. Oh, gosh. I mean... Well, where are they? There's this huge search. Naval search by U.S. and French and Canadian. Uh, they even had a, a dirigible uh, airship mm. uh, participating in it. Couldn't find anything. There How were, did they know even where to look? Did they... Well... The, they didn't they have had a any proposed idea. flight. Well, the, the, the only halfway reliable sightings of the plane were over Newfoundland. Hmm. And there were several. And this was considered to be uh, strong enough evidence to mount a search in Newfoundland. And so the, uh, the Guggenheim Foundation for Aeronautical Research and the DuPont family put up the money for a famous Australian pilot by the name of Sidney Cotton, who had also previously done some work in Newfoundland spotting seals and stuff. So he oh, knew Newfoundland. so he knew the bit. area. But he hadn't done anything for years. They set up Sidney Cotton with an airplane on floats. It was a Fokker Universal single-engine high wing on floats. Put it on a ship, took it up to Newfoundland. And Cotton spent the better part of a month in June, searching Newfoundland, hmm. following up on the witness reports. I said, didn't find anything. Wow. And that, that's where it stood. Fast forward to 1980. 
a writer by the name of Gunnar Hansen, Icelandic by birth, but American, living in Maine, heard about <clears throat> a, a legend about uh, a Maine woodsman hermit by the name of Anson Barry. Great <laughs> Maine name. Way up to near the town of Machias, Maine. But back in the country in a canoe on a lake called Round Lake on a morning in May, and it's foggy, and he hears an engine of an airplane come overhead. He never heard an airplane before, huh. but it was coming low overhead, couldn't see it, but then that engine went to sputtering. <laughs> and then he heard a faint ripping crash in the hills that rise to the west of Round Lake. And people, he, he told people in town what he'd heard when the next time he went in town to buy supplies. And they, oh, it must have been that French airplane. So this story develops. Oh, Hanson Barry heard that French plane. <laughs> and Gunnar Hansen eventually hears this story. And he tells the whole story of the white bird and, and, and writes it up for Yankee Magazine. And it gets published in the June issue of Yankee Magazine in 1980. <laughs> and it ends with a map of the Round Lake, of Round Lake and the Round Lake Hills with a little box and said, so this is, this is where the plane supposedly crashed. Someday a hunter may come across a rusted engine in the woods and a great aviation mystery will be solved. Uh. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about any of this. Uh, I didn't get Yankee Magazine, but my brother in upstate New York, Bob, got Yankee, read it and said, Rick might like this. And he tore it out and stuck it in the mail to me. Mm. Now, at that time, I was running an aviation insurance agency in Trenton, New Jersey. And I read this and I said, God, you know, that's really fascinating. But I got a business to run now. I said, Four years later, 1984, things had changed. We won't go into all the details, but I was done with the aviation insurance business. And, uh, and with a marriage that should have ended a lot earlier. <laughs> and in the midst of all kinds of financial trouble and looking for something to do, I said, I'm, I'm done with the insurance industry. And I did all the things I was supposed to do and, and turned out very well. Now I'm going to do what I want to do. And I got this article about the unfinished flight of the white bird. It's, it's, it's Gunnar Hansen. I called up my brother, Bob. I said, Bob, we're going to go look for the white bird. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a map. I mean, this just should be a matter. He's just going up in the hills yeah, and finding find it. <laughs> just go find it. And Bob, yeah, sounds like fun. And I went to some former insurance clients and people that ran airports, and I said, "That'd be great publicity for you. You know, you sponsor this thing. And yeah, we'll give you some money." And we had the money. We went up. Bob and I went up there. We interviewed people, and they told us the story and. We checked the newspaper archives, and there's nothing in the newspaper archives, but everybody had the story to tell. And we walked, tromped around up in the woods. We didn't find any old French airplanes, but I was hooked, man. <laughs> this was what I wanted to do. And came home, did some more research. I dragged Bob back up there a couple times until his wife said, no, no, well, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Okay, all right. So That Bob, was fun for a while, That boys. was fun for a while. <laughs> But fortunately, around that time, I'm divorced, and I met a young woman who, brilliant, great education, very poor judgment, and she decided, 
that um, Wait, she I along. know her very well. Yes. <laughs> I don't and think she has poor judgment. Yeah. And so Pat and I went went to uh, a DuPont for a insurance, insurance client and said, we got an idea. Uh, we've been looking into this great aviation mystery. What if we started, and, and it's always a problem raising the money, you know, what if we set up a nonprofit foundation that would sort of treat aviation, archaeology, and historical investigation as a real science and discipline, not just grave robbing and treasure hunting? He said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I'll, I'll grub stake you a little bit. He, he made um, $35,000 unsecured, no interest loan. Uh. <laughs> and he said, you're, you're going to live on this money. I'll give you a little house to live on here on the airport. You're going to use this money to get your 501c3, your, right, your right. IRS tax exemption. And once you have that, I'll make a tax deductible $35,000 donation to the foundation that the foundation will use to pay you and you will use to pay me. Is that legal? <laughs> he says, I don't know, but we'll do it. <laughs> so we did it, and it all worked. We we this we is the our... inception of Tiger, and that was the inception of Tiger. Uh, you know, Pat and I sat around her her coffee table, and we got to come up with a name for this organization. You know, it's and we picked a but it should include the name International because we're going to be, and it's going to be a group or maybe a society or maybe an association. I don't know, a foundation. And we see like a Chinese menu of, of, oh, all of the, words. Yes. And we take one from column B and one from column A. And, <laughs> and I said, how about this? The International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. And we'll use the acronym T-I-G-H-A-R and pronounce it TIGER. <laughs> and she says, that's not how you spell TIGER. I says, it is now. <laughs> oh, and, and, and the four is silent. Yeah, of oh, course. Yes. <laughs> so that's how Tiger was born. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah, uh, it was. That I was, can picture uh, this on a on a napkin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty it's, much. It's that bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so here we are, all these years later, uh, back looking for the white bird. So you know, well, can, can we, you give us look, a little uh, teaser about what you're doing there? Yeah. You know, we we looked in Maine for eight years before we figured out there's nothing here but stories. Yeah. <laughs> but those sightings in Newfoundland, that's Some that's, substance uh, that's there. worth looking into. So we we went up there and went out to the pond where okay, now I gotta talk about the plane in the pond. We we, we actually went to Newfoundland first because there was this report that wreckage of the white bird had been found by somebody and the Newfoundland provincial authorities had it. Oh. And they wanted somebody to see if to ver verify it. And so we went up there and looked at it and said, no, this is World War II stuff. Uh. This is not from the white bird. But while we were there, we heard this, well, you know, there's this there's this old legend. Oh, God, not another legend. <laughs> yeah, there's legend. So there's this What pond. was that guy's name? <laughs> There's this, there's this the pond. Every, any place else, it would be a lake. But in Newfoundland, it's a pond. Uh, on the interior of the Cape Shore, it's one of the peninsulas of the Avalon Peninsula. Very remote. Muskeg, um, like rocks covered with moss. Bog. 
about an airplane that crashed on a little rocky island out in the middle of the pond and people saw wreckage there and recovered pieces of wreckage and and nobody knew what plane it was. Then later they figured out maybe it was the white bird. And so I was, well, okay, I guess this is worth looking into. So was was there um, a local legend about seeing the aircraft other than the wreckage? No, there were the, there were the, there were the the accounts of the airplane being seen in flight. And then when oh, you, that you had heard earlier, previously, heard, right? About earlier, right. but when you track those out, the airplane is last seen headed in that general direction and thought to be on fire. Oh, really? Uh, but there's no mention of why they thought it was on fire. And you think, well, if it's on fire, it's trailing black smoke and it's probably not going to be in the air very long. But if it's trailing white smoke... It might be steam from a coolant failure. That airplane had a liquid-cooled engine. Huh. And if they had a coolant failure, it's been be trailing white smoke. And they've got an overheating engine, and they've got to find a place to land right away. Hmm. And they've got to find calm water to land on. So that kind of fits. Yeah. But there was nobody at the pond at the time. There was a guy trapping muskrat a few miles away, and... He heard three explosions in rapid succession. Really? And then later that winter, he was the pond while he was hunting caribou, when you can get out to the island on the ice, and there's all this metal and wreckage. And, wow. And, oh, it must have been an airplane crash. That's the explosion I heard. And other people later went out, and they talked about seeing wreckage and collecting pieces of wreckage. And everything. Hmm. So that's how this legend got started. And then we went there in 1992 and looked around with metal detectors and found an artifact that might be airplane wreckage. It's, a, it's just a, um, like a half cylinder of steel that originally had like an oily residue on the interior concave surface. And it had some blue paint on the outside surface. Uh-huh. And we know that steel components of the white bird were painted blue. So, okay, you know, this isn't proof of anything, but it supports yeah. this whole hypothesis. And that got us started into investigating this legend. And we did eight expeditions in Newfoundland looking for the engine in the pond and didn't find it. Wow. Over the course of what? Uh, years? Four years. No, no, no. Only two years. 92 to 94. Oh, okay. Yeah. The problem is we we want to use remote sensing technology. We had used electromagnetic detection equipment both um, through the ice in the winter. That was a lot of fun. Oh. <laughs> the only way to get to this place is by helicopter. Oh, gosh. And you get up there, and, and we had an inflatable boat and put this stuff and working on the ice. And then we, we did some more electromagnetic work in May of uh, 94 and we're getting these hits that are, oh there's a big mass of metal here and here and here and here and we really thought we had this thing and then we get there with divers and all the hits are just big rocks oh. with magnetite in them oh gosh so there's something wrong here and until there's a way to do a better remote sensing search of this pond uh, we just ought to back off and 
wait for technology to develop. Because the only way to do a magnetometry search at that time was by helicopter going back and forth. It's way oh, too expensive. Oh, yeah, that won't, way too expensive. <laughs> that won't work. Meanwhile, this is 94, and Earhart's getting hot. Right. You know? Right. And we said, all right, so let's concentrate on, on the Earhart thing. That's where it stood until September of last year, 2021, when... I got a phone call from the Discovery Channel show Expedition Unknown oh. with Josh Gates. We were interested in doing a show for Expedition Unknown about the white bird mystery. And every time we did research, we came up with your name. <laughs> so are you still working on that? And where, what's the status of that? And w would you come up to Newfoundland and be in a show with us? I said, look, we stopped because the we had to wait for the technology to be developed that would make it economical now that drone magnetometry is a thing oh and, yes and more much more economical than the helicopter but i still can't afford it and they said well if we paid for it would you come up i said <laughs> is that like hell yeah <laughs> tw twist my arm man. so yeah i i went up there and we did the tv show it was a lot of fun i bet but they did the magnetometry survey, and lo and behold, we had the answer to why we'd had so much trouble in the past. The pond is not geologically quiet the way we had always been told it was, oh. even by the provincial uh, department of uh, mines and energy. Oh, the, the the pond has what are known as dikes. This, these are areas where millions of years ago magma, lava, seeped up through the bedrock, through cracks, and solidified. And in those cracks, those are highly magnetic. Wow. And so you've got areas of that pond, and some of them go very close to that island where we think the airplane yeah. crashed, where the, the background magnetic noise is so intense that you can't so do remote find... sensing. There, there's... Right. The, an engine is nothing compared to <laughs> the rocks that are there. So, okay, that's an explanation of what the problem was. But the same survey now identified at least four places where they were getting hot spots magnetically that weren't, ex weren't explainable by the dikes. And oh, the, that's so interesting. So those are hits that are worth checking out. Huh. We're back in business. Okay, yeah. so okay. you're going back. So this we're, summer? we're we're going back in September. Ah. And we're going... And June. What are you doing in June? Yeah. Well Or is that just a preliminary We wanna do some more work at the pond to prepare for the September trip. We wanna shoot video that can in a very disciplined survey that can be used to construct a three D model oh. of the pond, which will be very useful in, in planning the September search. We're not going to do any searching in June or July, but okay. we'll do that. But we're also going to do a social event, you can call it. In Newfoundland, it's known as a mug-up. Like as in you coffee fill mug? your mug and oh. lift it up. <laughs> or beer? Or... Whatever you want to put in your mug. <laughs> but we're going to do that there near the Cape Shore in, in Placentia, Newfoundland, and invite all the people who want to come from the communities in the Cape Shore who know all these stories about oh, the plane in the fun. pond. And, and we want to hear more stories and, and see what people have to say. We're doing this all in cooperation with 
the Newfoundland Provincial Archaeology Office and Newfoundland archaeologists and and their wonderful museum and cultural center, the Rooms in St. John's. Uh. Yeah, we're we're excited about this. And there's always a chance that somebody there on the Cape Shore has a piece that Uncle So-and-so brought back from the pond. Yeah, and, who knows? And was never comfortable coming forward with it because they were afraid they'd get in trouble or something. No, no, it's all right. And it's, it's not just... like Niku or nobody's been there. And no, no, so this, is, this is very different. That's Very exciting. If, if if there is a polar opposite from Nicomororo, it's yes. Newfoundland. <laughs> really? Uh, you might freeze to death, but you're not going to fry to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. Mm -hmm. True. And there are no sharks in that pond. Yes, and you're going with divers when you yeah, go in the pond? Yeah, we're, we're going with divers. We're calling for Tiger member volunteers who would also like to participate in a land search. Oh, that sounds pond. fun. And it's not a great possibility of finding something after 95 years but you never know yeah and so we need to get out there it'll all be done under the supervision of archaeologists and and uh, doing it right yeah but we want to find that engine because this is history's most important missing airplane Lindbergh's flight was a momentous cultural event that inspired unprecedented hero worship and inspired thousands of young men and women to pursue careers in aviation, and it gave a tremendous boost to the American aviation industry. But if Nunjasar and Coley had reached New York, as everyone expected, Lindbergh would not have made that flight, and everything that happened because he did would have happened differently. Also, the fruitless search for the white bird dominated newspaper headlines for the 12 days before Lindbergh's takeoff and largely account for the hysteria that greeted his success. The disappearance of Nunjasar and Kohli was a hinge pin in history. <laughs> and I've only been trying to solve the mystery most of my adult well, life. Well, we'll look forward to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we're ready to do a podcast about... Yeah, you just call me. <laughs> you will be the first person I call. Yeah. All right. Thank well, you, thank you. Take, Take care, Rick. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.